0: Well, what a week it has been. It isn't news to you what's happened at the Supreme Court and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It was a monumental... It was a monumental decision, a vitally important decision. I, for one, as I think your applause indicates, I'm grateful for the decision, and yet I'm not unmindful, as I'm sure you're not, how much work remains to be done. There's now work in every state of the union to be done. And beyond all the legal issues, beyond all the legislative issues, the policy issues, because after all, we need to do everything we can to support families in this country. There's also the ministry issues that go on. A lot of pro-life organizations are going to pivot, I'm sure in our city as well, doing everything they can to support and help women who are in difficult situations and perhaps are being pressured to to make a decision that wouldn't be good for them or their child. And And so there's a lot to be done and we need to keep that in mind. I think for me, it's been a time of of gratitude, but I don't know if celebration would be the right word because I can't help but be struck by the amount of anger and fear and that combining together to even hatred and threats of violence that are happening because of this decision. And it seems to me that, simply underlines the point that I've tried to make the last two weeks. And it's this, we are in a spiritual battle. It's not just a matter of court decisions or laws or even government policies. There is a spiritual battle that's involved. Paul talks about rulers and authorities, powers and spiritual forces as I tried to explain a couple weeks ago, for Paul, that doesn't mean there's a devil on every shoulder whispering into people's ears. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the way spiritual power expresses itself in the warp and woof of a community. It, it shows itself in ideas, beliefs, and convictions, values, desires, ambitions, ideals, all of these things, which then gets embedded in curricula in all our schools and universities. It gets embedded into law. It gets embedded into policy. It gets embedded into corporate policy. It becomes part of the culture. And so it's important, yes, that we address those cultural manifestations of this spiritual Power, but we can't ignore the spiritual itself. It's quite evident that changing a law doesn't change hearts. And as people sometimes talked about in the war on terror, we have to win hearts and minds. Well, that's what the church needs to do in this day. Win hearts and minds. And in Ephesians 6, that passage we've, we've read twice, we're going to read again. Paul talks about spiritual warfare. And in a spiritual warfare, it's not like other warfare. In a spiritual warfare, you don't hate. And you don't fret. And you don't yield. As Paul says, you stand. You stand for God in Jesus Christ. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6 one more time. Actually, not one more time. Maybe 20 times. that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I read all 10 verses yet again and intend to continue because I pray this passage gets imprinted on all of our hearts and that we remember that there is a spiritual warfare in which we are engaged. You cannot escape it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot escape it. So Paul calls us to wage war, not against flesh and blood. That is not against human beings. There's no human being. Ultimately, there is no human being that is our enemy. They may, in some penultimate sense, set themselves against us. So you could loosely say, oh, this person or that person is an enemy, but in the ultimate sense, no human being's the enemy. No human being. But the powers, the dark forces of this age, the spiritual influences, that's where we battle with the prince of darkness himself. And so we don't hate, but we also don't fret and we don't yield. We take our stand. Now, if you might, you might remember that last week I... I set out a very literal translation from verse 14 on. I omitted a lot of phrases to try to show you the basic structure of the passage. I want to return to that for just a moment now. If you'd go ahead and put that up, please. And there he is. Look at all that gray hair. I'm just, <laughs> I've, got to, I've, got to, I've got to talk to my beautician about this. That's the wrong passage. That's not what I want. I need you to back out of that. There's one that you, there you go. Stand therefore, Paul says. Now you notice the italicized words. That represents, except in one case, a participle. So he says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having put on as shoes the gospel of peace. And taking up the shield of faith. Then there's an imperative verb. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Another part is simple. Praying at all times in the spirit and keeping alert. So you notice the praying and the keeping alert, I talked about that last week in a very brief sermon. (laughs) And then you see, if you're going to stand, and that's the command, right, is to stand. Be strong in the Lord and take a stand. How do you do that? Well, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and on and on. That is, Paul is saying that as you take your stand, this is the way you do it. And the first part of that is this fastening on of the belt of truth. Paul's picturing a, a, a soldier and as, as he talks about the elements of the armor, he roughly follows the order in which a soldier would clothe himself, um, readying for battle. And so the first thing is he gird up himself, fasten his belt. And so Paul's saying, you need to gird up yourself with truth. If you're going to stand, you need truth. Hold to truth. It needs to be with you at all times. You cannot compromise on truth at all. Now, in a way, it might surprise you. Because in our day, if you stand for truth, you're going to draw fire. It doesn't sound like something that's going to protect you in battle. And to some degree, it doesn't. It absolutely will draw fire. It drew fire in the case of Jesus. What did Jesus do to deserve persecution? When, when he was flogged on the orders from Pilate, when he was beaten with rods, when nails were driven through his flesh to fix him to a cross, and there he hung between heaven and earth, what had he done? What justified it? Only one thing. Just one thing. He spoke truth. That's what justified. He spoke truth. And there were many in positions of power who did not want to hear it. He spoke truth. When he stood before Pilate, Pilate said, what have you done? He said, I've done nothing. My kingdom's not of this world. He said, I have come to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth, said Jesus, listens to me. Pilate sneered, what's truth? And sent him off to be flogged. Jesus testified to truth. That's why he was crucified. It's really that simple. So yes, speaking for truth can draw fire. There's no question about that. But then we are called to follow Jesus, aren't we? We're called to take up our cross. What is that but to say, reconcile with our own death if need be. We take up our cross to follow him. And if we draw fire, what of it? Though this world with devils filled, threatens to undo us. Remember, we sang it last week. Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It threatens to undo us. We will not fear for God has willed his, what? Truth to triumph through us. And so we gird up our loins with truth and we walk into battle. Unwilling to yield what is true. Lots of people aren't interested in truth. They're interested in what is useful. They're interested in what feels right to them. They have all sorts of opinions about the way things ought to be and they want them to be that way, but but truth is a funny thing. It doesn't bend to our will. Truth has a kind of intolerance to it. It is utterly indifferent, rather indifferent, to your opinions or mine, completely disregards what we want, what we like, what we think we need. The truth is the truth, independent of us. And our task is not to try to make the world conform to what we think it ought to be, but to acknowledge what it is. And according to Jesus Christ, well, he is the truth. And he brings the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's what Jesus said. And then in John chapter 8, if you'd put up that first verse from John 8 for me, please. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There is real darkness And there is real light. And those who follow Christ Christ walk in the light. Those who do not follow Christ, they walk in the darkness. Jesus draws a line right there. He says it's one side or the other. There's a choice that has to be made. He goes on to say this. Put it the next verse, if you would. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth And the truth will set you free if you hold to my teaching. Not if you just superficially, you know, tip your hat to it, but you hold to Christ's teaching. You make it yours. You conform your life to it. You live with it, in it, out of it. You hold to my teaching. Then you're really my disciples. And you'll know the truth. If you follow me, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free from what? He goes on to say, free from sin. Free from sin. Says everyone who sins is a slave of sin, but my truth will set you free. How valuable is that? If you stand with truth, you may take fire. There's a cost involved in following Jesus. But at the same time, you find freedom. Spiritual freedom and salvation, eternal life. What a trade. What a bargain. Now, not everyone sees it that way. There are many people who don't see it as being set free at all. They think that yielding to the truth as it is in Christ is a bondage. But you see, Jesus is the truth and Jesus teaches truth. Those who reject that embrace lies. So if you love a lie, you don't see your bondage as bondage. You see it as freedom. But that's because you believe a lie. Do you see that? People who repudiate the commandments of the Lord, they see it as bondage, see it that way because they believe a lie and they pursue a life of freedom, which is in fact bondage. And it is, in fact, darkness. So these are serious things. And as I say, Jesus lays it down for us. There's a choice to be made. And not everyone will like your choice if you choose to follow Christ. There was a day, there was a day, the younger among you just have to take my word for it. It actually predates me. There was a day when there was something to the so-called Bible Belt. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. But the Bible Belt was that part of the United States where not only were there many believers, but there were many people who, they were good church people, whether believers or not. And everyone felt like they had to at least acknowledge certain things and and the value of the Christian faith, or at least religion in general. You used to have that. You don't have that now. You don't have that now. And there's a choice then that has to be made because back then, people would respect you. In fact, they'd expect you, if you're a respectable person, to go to church. They'd respect you for that. That, that, that. (laughs) There's some people who slander you for doing it now. I've met some like that. So there was a man who was born blind from birth. You can read his story in the Gospel of John, chapter 9. He was born blind Blind and and Jesus miraculously healed him. It was an incredible miracle. People all around him were shocked. Some some were so overwhelmed by the miraculous nature of this healing, they thought it, it can't be the man. It must be someone who looks just like him. How can he see now? He was blind, he was born blind. It's not possible. But he says, No, it's me. It's me. I've been healed. Well, the Pharisees were called and they assessed the situation and they were not happy at all because this healing took place on the Sabbath day. And according to their understanding of Scripture, no such work should be done on the Sabbath day. Who is this who healed you? Well, the man really didn't know and didn't know where the healer had gone. They say, well, who do you say that he is? Well, I think he's a prophet. They didn't believe that. They talked to his parents. His parents were afraid to give a straight answer on anything because the Pharisees had already decided that if you said Jesus was Messiah, you're going to be put out of the synagogue. They called the man back in. They said, you need to tell us what happened. Tell us exactly what happened. Speak the truth. Honor God by telling us the truth, they said. They said, you know, I've already told you the truth. Why do you keep asking me about this? Do you want to be his disciples? There's a little needle in there. They're furious. How dare you speak to us like that? We are the disciples of Moses. This man, we don't even know where he comes from. The man said, That's interesting. That's really interesting because we know that no one's going to be able to heal the blind unless God's with them. But then you don't know where this man's from. Makes me wonder what you do know. You were born in sin. Get out of here. And they throw him out. So Jesus learns that he's been thrown out. And he goes and finds him. And he says, When you believe in the Son of Man. He says, Lord, I'll believe. Who is the Son of Man? And he says, it's the one speaking to you now. And he says, Lord, I believe. And then Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world. That those who are blind might see, and those who see or think they see might be made blind. See, there's a judgment that's taking place. While all this conflict is going on about truth, you stand with Christ and there's conflict around you. And not everyone's going to love you, but there is a judgment being worked out. God is both extending grace, giving people an opportunity to repent, to receive the truth, but but is also testing people. Will you receive it? And we can't treat it, the truth that is, we can't treat it as something not worth our time because it comes from God. It takes courage to stand for Jesus Christ. It really does. Sometimes your own family will turn against you. Jesus said that. Jesus said that. That following Christ may actually cause division in your own family and if it happens, is it your fault? No, it's the it's the truth's fault. It's the truth's fault. That's what happens. Could be coworkers. It could be any number of things. But it can it can cost you to follow Jesus. But we enter into this battle with the belt of truth. We stand by truth. No matter what happens, we will not yield. So in 1989, there was a rising freedom movement in China. It was an astonishing thing. Some of you might remember when it was happening. I certainly do. I couldn't believe the reports that were coming out of China. Thousands and thousands of students supported by others gathering around them began to protest and demand freedoms that we take for granted, freedom of speech and other things. They demanded that the government be accountable. And so at first, at first, the authorities did nothing about it. They just let it continue. But then it started to spread from Beijing and Tiananmen Square to other cities across the country. And as it began to spread, the authorities said, this must be stopped. And so on June 4th, 1989, with Tiananmen Square filled with thousands and thousands and thousands of Chinese citizens, 300,000 soldiers were called upon to move in with rifles and tanks and all and tear gas and all the other weapons you would expect there's been no no accurate accounting of the number of people who died how could there be china immediately suppressed as much information as they could getting out but the most reliable estimates say that thousands Thousands died on that day at Tiananmen Square. After the bloodbath, authorities started spreading out and trying to find everyone who was involved. People were thrown in prison. People were executed for this. Every effort was made to stomp out this freedom movement. And since then, there has been censorship on the internet, interesting how authoritarians like to censor things. Censorship on the internet. Many in China aren't even aware of what happened in 1989. Not many of them don't, but surprising number do. There was a, there was a frontline documentary about Tiananmen Square some years ago, and reporters were talking to Chinese students, and they showed them pictures Said, do you know what this is? They said, No, we haven't ever seen the pictures. But one of the students whispered to another and said, It's night, it's 89, he said. It's 89. There's still some knowledge of what was done and, and how this thing was suppressed. But oh my. One photo got out, actually several, but there's one that's iconic. And sometimes a photograph says everything. Maybe you've seen this photograph. Would you put it up? This is from June 5th, the day after the slaughter. And the soldiers are cleaning up after the bloodbath. And you see these tanks. There are four in the picture, but there's a wider shot that was taken. And there are 15 or 20 lined up. And you see those tanks rolling down. And do you see that tiny figure standing in front of them? Do you see that? It's a man with a white shirt and black pants. He's wearing two shopping, he's holding two shopping bags in his hands. He is standing in front of these tanks. Now remember, this is the day after the slaughter. This man knew what happened in Tiananmen Square and he knew the risk that he was taking and he stood in front of that tank and would not move. The tank tried to turn around after stopping, tried to turn and go around him and he moved in front of the tank again. The tank turned the other direction. He moved in front of the tank. Eventually, the four tanks shut down their engines. He climbed up on it and appeared to be speaking down to to someone, someone in the tank for a few moments. He climbed back off. They started up their engines to move again, and he stood in front and would not let them go. Sometime after that, not long, this is several minutes, but two men wearing blue clothing came and grabbed him and dragged him off into the crowd. Some Western reporters tried to find out who they were. No one knows for sure. One reporter said it was the Chinese police. Another one said no. I think she said it was an, it, they were bystanders who were concerned for the man, but they pulled him away. No one knows who this man is. He's known as tank man. Seriously, go to the internet, put in tank man. You'll see this picture, you'll see others, you'll read the story. No one knows who he is. Nobody knows who ha- what happened to him. No one knows. One rumor says, 14 days later, he was put to death. Another says he was killed by a firing squad some months later. Others say the Chinese authorities could never identify him. But there he is, a single man, standing in front of those tanks in their path, refusing to let them pass. So Time Magazine names 100 people of the 20th century. 100 people, people who had a significant impact, people who made a difference. One of the categories, leaders and revolutionaries. And you look down the list and you see it right there, unidentified protester in Tiananmen Square, tank man. So what does this man, we don't know his name, we don't know if he lived. He certainly didn't overthrow the Chinese government. But what makes this man one of the great leaders and revolutionaries? What did he do? He stood. Pray with me. Lord, may we stand in truth, whatever the cost, not hating. Anyone or counting anyone our enemy. But Lord, not compromising when compromise would be easy. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. We confess it to be so. We know it to be so. And we will stand with you as you stood with us and you went to the cross for us. In Jesus' name, amen.